Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in French Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Roxanne Panchassi. My guest in this episode is Jacob Collins, the author of The Anthropological Turn, French Political Thought After 1968. And the book was published by the University of Pennsylvania Press in 2020. Hi there, Jake. Hi, Roxanne. Great to be here. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm a big fan of the show. It's, it's, um, I'm so glad to be talking with you. So, Jake, I've been asking everyone how they've been doing through this global pandemic. Do you want to tell us a little bit about where you are and how it's all been for you? Yeah, sure. I, uh, I'm stationed in uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I make a commute uh, to the College of Staten Island where I teach, though I've been teaching online since uh, since April 2020. Wow. Um, I've had a child in the meantime. Uh, just, Congratulations. Thank you very much. Uh, she just turned one a few weeks ago. So this has made my pandemic experience uh, even more up and down, uh, dynamic, interesting. Uh, So yeah, I'm trying to balance research, teaching and uh, raising a child all from the comfort of my office or my home. Well, if you, I have a 12 year old and I still haven't figured that out. No, not to scare you. If you get if you if you come up with any good tips, let, let us all know. Um, yeah, I will. I will be sure to do that. I don't know if there there are going to be any though. Yeah, it's a challenge for sure, um, but also I'm sure a joy in lots of ways. So that's that's a lot to, to be dealing with, and to have a book come out uh, during this time when it's hard to to celebrate in person. Well, it's impossible to celebrate in person in a lot of cases, and um, to to honor it. So I'm I'm really glad to be able to to talk about it and eventually be able to share the book with, with others in this way. Um, so Jake, I also asked people, you know, how they came to France and the study of French history, philosophy, political thought in your case. What, how did that happen? It came from growing up in a very small town in upstate New York and hmm. having an interest in books and a, a best friend who was intellectually very precocious and who gave me on my 16th birthday, a copy of uh, Jean-Paul Sartre's uh, Nausea. Wow. Which, which I, yeah, which I, which I devoured and, and loved. And that set me 
I guess on a path of reading French literature and philosophy, it took me to Camus and to, to Proust. And, and then when I got to college, it's not immediately what I studied, but eventually what I gravitated toward, um, French ideas, French literature. Uh, so that's sort of, I guess, the origin story I tell myself. Mm-hmm. And the subject of this book, how did you become someone who was interested in this later 20th century uh, intellectual history, political thought? How did that happen? I was working on a, an honors thesis at Cornell, Cornell University where I did my undergraduate studies, and um, I had been working on a project about the Algerian War, particularly the transition from colony to independent nation state. And I went to graduate school thinking I would do a, a topic that was related. I was interested in the 60s and the 70s. And at the same time, I was also, uh, in addition to being interested in colonial history, uh, still really interested in more classical European intellectual history. So I went to graduate school not not knowing exactly which avenue I would pursue. And ultimately, I guess the intellectual side won out um, as I took classes, as, as I read more and more. Uh, there were a few books that really sparked my interest in the 70s in particular. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kristen Ross's book on 1968, mm-hmm. uh, which, is, which is a book really about post-68, um, was one. Uh, Julian Borg's book on 68 was another. It had come out my second or third year in graduate school. Uh, Michael Scott Christofferson's book on the 70s, incredibly eye-opening for me. Maybe that was the one that really made me want to study the 70s as uh, an interesting political moment in which so much was up for grabs, ideologically really complex, difficult, hard to figure out exactly what was happening. And, And reading that book, I thought... You know, here's a way of looking at journals, intellectuals, and politics all uh, woven together in this like compelling narrative that that was also politically hard hitting. Well, you've taken us quite naturally, Jake, to to one of the first big questions I wanted to ask you. Kind of turning around the second part of the the title of the book, French political thought after 1968. You know, if we could just talk about the 1970s, you know, as an idea, like as a moment, <laughs> as a historical moment but also the idea of, you know, a decade characterized by these things. And I guess I have two big questions uh, or a two-pronged question with respect to to the book's emphasis on this decade of the 70s. One has to do with the fact that, you know, you mentioned that Kristen Ross's book, which I love, love that book, um, is, you know, seems like a book, book, it's a book about 68, but it's also a book about after 68. And I guess I, I wonder for you in this project, you know, how much, this is a book about the 1970s, but it's necessarily a book that's kind of responding to as the thinkers and ideas that you're exploring are doing that. That, that 1968 is still there, right, all the time. So I, I wanted to ask you about that, like how this book about the 70s is a book about 1968. And then also, yeah, the the idea of working on a decade and how much you think a decade I mean, it's sort of a grand philosophical question in some ways. You know, how does a decade hold and what would you want us to to know about uh, the 70s as as a as a unit, as a whole? Like what the what are the main characteristics that that you would want to draw our attention to? So 68 was something I, I thought naturally framed a new era in French history and opened uh, new social questions. It brought new social actors into visibility. Uh, it changed political rhetoric, 
it changed social, social dynamics um, in, in ways that were still unraveling in the 80s, 90s, and even up to the present. Mm. Sarko Z was running in 2007 against 68. Uh, mm. It's still in the rhetoric of Zemmour and, and the candidates to the far right. So it's a, it's a complicated political legacy that, that was still really indeterminate in the 1970s mm. and up for grabs. So that seemed to me to be an obvious way to frame a decade. Um, and the 70s are nice, too, because you, you have to do a long decade thing, and you don't want to make it too long because then <laughs> it would be <laughs> sort of uh, unconvincing. But 81's election of uh, Mitterrand, the socialist, forms a nice almost decade between 68 and 81. So um, in terms of what's happening in the 70s, the recession of 73 and the oil shock prompted by wars in the Middle East combined with some really contentious elections, 74, uh, the Union of the Left almost defeats uh, the liberal candidate, Giscard. Uh, in 78, you have this really interesting legislative election where you have kind of four equal, equally competing entities are almost neck and neck tied. Uh, the Union of the Left is broken apart. Uh, and the, the parties of the right and the center end up winning out. So it's a moment of, of gridlock uh, mm. politically. It's a moment of, I would say, hyper-politicization. And I think 68 has a lot to do with that sense of, of convulsion, of, gen- of generating interest of, for voters, people across society, generating great interest in politics, as opposed to you know the period I grew up in and went to college in the 90s, the early 2000s, um, were comparatively unpolitical, I, I would say, mm. and it, a great surprise. Um, as I was in the middle of graduate school, was the two thousand eight uh, Great Recession, so called, mm-hmm. uh, wh- which did lead to this. And I, it was fairly obvious this was going to happen, as it happened, um, a new hyper politicization, which I think has continued for the last fifteen years, and is the framing context in which the project was eventually written. So I saw some parallels between what was happening in the early 2010s uh, and what was happening back in the 70s. I I should also say that I have a a tremendous uh, cultural interest in the 1970s, the music, the art. Mm -hmm. um, that, that, uh, That also appealed to me. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. I just, when I was starting reading the book, that contrast that you set up between the 60s, what what feels anywhere as a reader is this like vibrant time, <laughs> this time of possibility and the, the kind of shut, a, a sense of shutting down. And what do you do? What do you say? You said that this is a decade of malaise and um, yeah. malaise is like a, it's a, it's a pretty popular word in my, in my household. <laughs> it's, a, it's one that my son uses all the time. Lately. It's a great word. Um, yeah. It's such a great word. <laughs> and I guess I, I just wanted you to, to, you've already set that up a little bit, but if you could just say a little bit in terms of how that malaise, how you would understand that malaise is kind of characterizing thought, you know, intellectual life in, in, in the 1970s. Yeah, I mean, I think the malaise is coming from a dis- disappointments following a great moment of collective uh, uprising, collective effervescence, I guess, to use a Durkheimian phrase. Mm. The failure of that, at least for people who are involved in it or people on the left who are rooting for it, or people not on the left rooting for it, if those existed, uh, that failed to produce any real lasting immediate change in, mm-hmm. um, in, in French society. It didn't produce a, a left-wing political movement that um, 
that that really people could organize around, or it did, but it wasn't it wasn't that strong. Uh, the you know economic recession, of course, uh, high gas prices and all that. Um, but yeah, it, it's it the the interest in politics kind of canceled out any social change. There didn't seem to be, uh, even though if there there was new interest in politics, it wasn't. It, it was it was stopped. It, there was no real momentum momentum in any one direction. Mm-hmm. So it must have felt like after a, a moment of great promise, um, there there followed a moment of great disappointment and confusion. So now that we've set up the sort of uh, scope of the book, or at least set up the decade that the book uh, you know focuses on, I want to linger on those first three words of the title. The the anthropological turn, um, you know, which when I first got the book, I, you know, not knowing a lot about what, what I was going to be reading, I, I was really struck by the title. It's very evocative. And so, yeah, I want you to tell us, Jake, what the anthropological turn refers to and, you know, this terminology that you use of political anthropology throughout the book, if you can kind of explain that for us. Yeah, the anthropological turn uh, signifies in the book um a way in which political theorists or intellectuals, more broadly speaking, uh, became kind of fake anthropologists. Uh, <laughs> so it's not it's not referring to the work of actual anthropologists, mm. um, whose work wasn't very important for the thinkers that I that I discuss in this book. Yeah, political thinkers um, borrow concepts from the discipline of anthropology. They do field work. I would put that in quotations. They sometimes travel to places and, and are inspired by those places, and it makes its way into their political theory. They uh, do practice something like the view from afar, le regard éloigné of, mm. of Lévi-Strauss, uh, though I think in ways that Lévi-Strauss would not have accepted. Mm-hmm. But it's a, it's a, it to me represents a popularization of the work that anthropologists did in the 1950s and 60s, particularly Lévi-Strauss. So there's a story about the increasing prestige of the social sciences and anthropology in particular, and how this found its way into thinking about the basic building blocks of politics. So I I see the 70s, to go back to your earlier question, as a, a reset for thinking about politics. Okay, we've had this transformative moment, or not transformative moment of 68, uh, where do we go from here? What what does it mean to be part of a Republican political system? What uh, what does religion uh, and what do politics and religion have to do with one another? What is the social? Who constitutes the social? So the work of anthropologists and the prestige of, of thinkers like Levi Strauss, I think, were really influential on young thinkers in particular who were writing in the seventies and were contending with these problems uh, and wanted to find a different answer, come up with a new mm-hmm. uh, way of talking about them. So when you're setting up in the, I mean, the introduction to the book is really like a first full chapter. Like it feels quite, um, when I say weighty, I don't mean unpleasant. I just mean like there's a lot going on in that in that introduction, a lot getting set up. And when you're laying out the this this notion of political anthropology in, in the 1970s and explaining, you know, the choice of, of figures that, that the book focuses on, you characterize the concepts and methodologies of these thinkers or the, the concepts and methodologies that they're drawing on from anthropology, that these thinkers are interested in 
religion and the sacred, family, identity, the state, that they're sort of borrowing things here and there, not necessarily in a systematic way from structuralisms, um, that they're interested in French uh, thinkers in particular, sort of like pushing away the maybe traditions in French um, intellectual work that have drawn on German and other philosophies and ideas. And also this idea of uh, rejecting liberalism and Marxism, like these two big (laughs) pillars. So there's a lot going on in terms of what political anthropology is. And one of the things that I was really struck by in the book, Jake, is that, and we'll, we'll get to the specific thinkers that you focused on, but this idea that you see political anthropology as something that really is operating at the heart of the intellectual work of a number of different thinkers whose politics vary. So can you talk a little bit about how this idea that you're working with political anthropology sort of seems to transcend certain types of political divisions in this period? Yeah, absolutely. It was really important to me when I conceptualized this project that I incorporate the entire political spectrum. Mm. The work I'd been doing in graduate seminars had emphasized the political thinking of the right and of of liberals um, as well as of left-wing thinkers and Marxists. So I wanted, I thought in, in order to, to elucidate this paradigm that I, I wanted people to see after 1968, it would be most compelling if I were to make a cross-spectrum, uh, cross-political inquiry into um, how this is shaped, how this is panned out, mm. essentially. So it's it, so the, the thinkers I focus on cover a, a wide spectrum of ideas. But even um, within that spectrum, there are different political tendencies and um, ideological perspectives that I think employ this idea of an anthropological turn or political anthropology. The thinkers around Marcel Gaucher, who's a focus of the second chapter, Cornelius Castoriadis, Claude Lefort, beyond those figures of the, I guess you can call libertarian left or non-communist left. Uh, There's a little bit of it in in Pierre Rosenvalon. You get it in a political thinker like Blondine Krigel, writing in the late 70s, involved in the politics around the union of the left. So I think there's tons of evidence for it on the communist left, non-communist left, but also within Liberal thinkers like early on Emmanuel Todd. Emmanuel Todd is not a liberal thinker today, uh, wouldn't identify as such, but I think when he was a young thinker uh, in the late 70s, he was very much a liberal. Mm. You know, it's a, a little bit of in Furet coming through maybe Annal and these different mid century, earlier 20th century traditions. And then in the work of, of the thinkers of the extreme right, Hélène de Benoit and, and thinkers. Uh, of that tradition, not just in France, but also across Europe. Interestingly, uh, the New Right is kind of the most internationalist movement, or maybe Benoit is the most internationalist thinker in some ways uh, of this group of thinkers that I've focused on here. One of the things that you emphasize is that these thinkers that you've chosen, that they're not... They're not the ones that get talked about the most when we talk about the 1970s and French thought, not just political thought, but just French thought, philosophy, other things. And I was really struck by that because you, at, at a certain point, Jake, you, you're sort of positioning the book in relationship to other intellectual histories of the late 20th century. And this idea of 
Yeah, working on thinkers who are very important in the French context, but not so important or didn't have the same type of impact or reach internationally. And I was really intrigued by that because it made me think about the French thinkers that historians and others who work on it from North America tend to write about, tend to talk about, and how much that work and scholarship is shaped by the thinkers and ideas that have had more purchase on this side of the Atlantic. So I guess I just wondered if you could say a little bit about your choices and how you'd want us to understand the significance of the range of thinkers that you're looking at for French intellectual life and political thought and how we might kind of tease out the difference between that and the thinkers that that people associate with French thought in this period, partly because they were so influential, well, in English <laughs> um, and, and in other languages and, and places. Yeah, I wanted to write a history that, that, as I said, brought out a new paradigm to, to make sense of this, of this period of, from the 70s to basically the present. But it was also really important for me to, along the way, introduce English readers to mm. a new set of thinkers uh, who don't get translated as frequently as, as others and who are not read in seminars or it, as much as, as those so-called French theorists who get so much uh, airplay in uh, from the 60s and the 70s. Uh, that comes from a place of, of frustration of, uh, you know, graduate Seminar discussions <laughs> with people who only know these big names. Uh, oh, you work you work on, on French intellectual history. You know, what do you think about Foucault, Deleuze, and Derrida? <laughs> yeah, it's not. I mean, it's not any. I, I love those thinkers, and I love to read them and talk about them. But I, I just felt that there's a lot more happening in France, mm. and that people deserve to know about it. And um, I would make them. I would make them read about it, um, whether they like yeah. it or not. <laughs> um, <laughs> Well, and you also make the case that if we really want to understand what's going on in France, that these thinkers and these ideas are are pretty essential. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. That's the other point, is that these thinkers command uh, large domestic readerships audiences through various means. And um, as intellectuals, the French don't really have a word for public intellectuals, just say intellectuel, but as intellectuel, they are very political operators and uh, most of them run journals, edit journals, participate in the larger media sphere by going on France Culture or going on tele- the various television shows where, uh, you know, you, you simulate this like crossfire debate, you know, soundbites galore. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, they, they, they write in a more, not always, but write in a more popular fashion. They write to be read. They write opinion pieces uh, and very much shape opinion. If you look at somebody like Gaucher, who edited the um, journal Le Débat for the entire 40-something years of its its existence, uh, that proved to be an extremely influential, uh, well-read, well-received journal of the center-left. Todd is somebody, this is interesting, Todd was not somebody who was especially controversial and and well-known in France when I started this project, but after the um, Charlie Hebdo attack. Yeah, he published this controversial book, "Who Is Charlie," and became and hasn't really since left uh, the public stage as a kind of 
a provocateur and, and somebody who uh, seems to delight in broadcasting, coming up with uh, incendiary opinions. Mm-hmm. This, this different cast of characters, I think, speaks more to how France, French people digest ideas, talk about ideas. Uh, I don't get the sense that uh, both Deleuze and, and, and Foucault and Derrida were they were kind of avant-garde theorists. They had political opinions. They sometimes wrote about politics, but it wasn't their work wasn't readily available to be politicized. You don't get the sense that people really engage in politics in France through these thinkers, whereas mm-hmm. much more so with the ones that I wrote about here. Right. And I'm curious, sort of, les coulisses, like, were there any fifth Beatles? How did these four make the, make, like, was it just sort of natural, like, I'm gonna, I can't believe I just said that. Anyways, um, I know you know what I mean. You know, other thinkers who didn't quite make it here, or how did the project evolve to include these four? Yeah, uh, there were there were fifth Beatles at various points, uh, but I got overwhelmed. It was hard enough just to do four. Um, I was very close to including Blandine Kriegel. Um, another book had just come out that had used both Kriegel and, and Gaucher, and I thought that would be too close. Um, I thought about doing uh, Rosanne Vallon. He wrote too many books. And that that would be <laughs> I, a good reason. Know, actually, all these figures. Yeah, I mean, all these figures wrote too many books. Um, so I, I I somewhat arbitrarily stopped it for uh, the selection process is uh, yeah it's a little complicated. I started this project um, as a project on Benoit and the New Right. Uh huh. That project I think I invented in 2006 or seven, and then the 2008 crash happened and this goes back to the point i mentioned earlier about hyperpolitics. it seemed like well the right wasn't just the most it wasn't so interesting to me anymore i wanted to know more about what was happening in the rest of the political spectrum and i didn't feel the research on the new right was going any place that interesting so i wanted to open it up i then considered writing the entire project on debray huh. who, whose work fascinates uh fascinated and continues to fascinate me and i, I think is under appreciated debray's work covers so much ground and he's such a puckish uh provocative writer writing in a high literary style i, I find it i find it really compelling not always but definitely some, some problems and criticisms right gaucher struck me as a really important thinker whose work was sophisticated uh, relevant to what was happening politically in France uh, for the reasons I, I mentioned a minute ago. Uh, so I thought, you know, reading through his work and the way he engaged with Lévi-Strauss and, and ideas about religion, uh, what he calls primeval religion, I thought that would be a good conversation between Debray and, um, and Gaucher. And then Todd, I came across one of his, I think it was his book on Empire after the Empire, written right right up in the lead up to the uh, Second Iraq War, and saw that he had this elaborate model of uh, family anthropology, family family trees, essentially, and thought, okay, there's a common basis between all of these thinkers. Benoit thinking about Indo-European anthropologies, uh, Todd producing this incredibly complicated typology of families, Gaucher writing about primeval religion, Debray writing about uh, the sacred. So this solidified these four as the ones that would 
mm-hmm. uh, make it into the final cut, and um, all uh, all other applications were denied. <laughs> um, so that first chapter on De Benoit, I mean, it has such a provocative title, Toward a White Nationalist Europe. Can you tell us why that chapter is called Toward a White Nationalist Europe? toward a white nationalist Europe as a way of kind of giving us a bit of a peek at de Benoit and what emphases you put on uh, in terms of his life and his, his ideas in that chapter. Toward a white nationalist Europe is, thank you, uh, deliberately provocative, I guess. It, it corresponds, I think, to his ultimate political wish, which he never says as such. I think that I think reading about Du Benoit and reading Du Benoit in this political moment is particularly interesting in the way that yeah. the politics of the extreme right in Europe, in the United States, across the world, uh, is developing, and there is in the in the ideas of, of Du Benoit, the new right more broadly, this incredible tendency to never say what you actually believe. the The idea of the dog whistle seems to me yeah. to be perfected by uh, the writings of de Benoit, something he, he really mastered uh, in the 70s or even earlier. The, the origins of the New Right come out of Algeria. Uh, he was uh, an activist militating for preservation of French Algeria. He produ- participated in uh, some kind of extreme right terrorist networks, uh, bowed out of it in the mid-60s, bounced around in small militant groups of the far right before founding Grece, G-R-E-C-E, in 1968 with a a number of fellow militants. And there you get a lot of the ideas that fueled uh, the Algérie Française movement and uh, ideas about race, about civilization. Uh, These were all channeled into the new right in 68, but were never, I want to say, they were never broadcast as racist or as culturally chauvinistic. Mm-hmm. But if you kind of read between the lines, if you read carefully, if you were a, a knowing reader, you would pick up all of the references to Indo-European values, uh, the, the the attractiveness of pagan cultures, uh, the degradedness of racial mixing, very disturbing racist ideas kind of presented as less offensive uh, ideas about multiculturalism, everybody having their own culture. But, uh, you know, read from a different angle, it's nobody should ever assume somebody else's cultural identity or nobody should ever integrate into somebody else's culture. Mm -hmm. And as you read through the different episodes, uh, eras of de Benoit's work, you start to get this idea that of what he means by by Europe, and it, it's not nationalist; it's a, a pan-nationalist European cultural superiority. He's never been a fan of French republicanism, French nationalism, all of the French rightist discourse, which attached itself to, to church, nation, de Gaulle. That's all totally anathema to De Benoit. Uh, he is interested in a kind of whiteness, an embattled white identity, uh, and sees immigration, the the mixing of non-European cultures with European cultures to be an incredible threat. Mm -hmm. And it's at that level that he has this kind of utopian wish for a purely 
white Europe that um, that that could be one day. And in the later part of his writing in the, in the 90s and the 2000s, he starts to look toward Russia as the uh, the savior for Europe. Um, huh. and has links with Dugin, uh, this you know kind of shadowy uh, Russian philosopher who apparently is 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 influencing uh, Putin. So there is this idea that like France uh, that Russia will save Europe from from Africa and Asia. Well, and that's certainly a I don't know what Chilling the right thought. word is to think about right now. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail, from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com/system. That second chapter focuses on the work of Gaucher and the and the anthropology of the state. And you know, it's interesting too because while each chapter focuses on a particular theme, of course all of these well, maybe not all of them are doing all of the themes, but that, you know, all of these authors, there's connections in, in terms of the thematics and, and their ideas. So, so yeah, that Gaucher uh, chapter that comes after the de Bunois chapter, how is, how is the emphasis in that, in that chapter different? And what is, what is Gaucher's contribution with respect to, you know, thinking about the state in anthropological terms? Yeah. Uh, Gaucher comes out of uh, a, a fairly radical teenage uh teenage years he grew up in normandy was born in the late 40s i think 46 um a fairly normal provincial upbringing he was a choir boy in the catholic church and i think that his parents wanted him to go into the priesthood a fairly humble uh upbringing and he got caught up in student politics uh through claude de Fort. he met lefort at at, at uh, University of Caen, and uh, became you know he tells stories of of taking the train into Paris during '68 and and participating in some of the marches uh, and some of the political gatherings. He comes out of '68 as a member of the second left, uh, the libertarian left, um, sympathetic to the work being done in the Catholic trade union, uh, the CFDT. And uh, starts a number of small kind of avant-garde journals of political theory with Lefort, very much uh, very close to Lefort at this time, and to Castoriadis. And um, Lefort's political trajectory is very important for Gaucher. Lefort himself came out of uh, Meloponsi, uh, was interested in anthropology, sociology. And political theory, and this is Gaucher's uh, Gaucher's contribution to that world is to really focus on religion mm. in the mid nineteen seventies. Uh, and he gets interested through reading Levi Strauss, uh, what he calls primeval religion and societies without states. And he's very he maintains a fairly traditional Levi Straussian understanding of uh, the difference between so-called uh, developed modern societies and you know, non-developed, more primitive, quote-unquote, societies. 
Um, and that furnishes him with a basis for then taking those ideas and putting them in time. Mm-hmm. I think that's really what Gaucher does is he builds a, a historical narrative around uh, societies without a state and, and tries to understand what happens when you develop a state and how you develop a state. Mm. And what's interesting for him is that it's all based in the religion of Christianity and the particular structures of the Christian religion and the identification that uh, Christians have with this mediator figure of Christ. And for Gaucher, belief in the other world through the instrument of the divine mediator of Christ ends up providing a means of self collective self-knowledge mm. for a group of people. And this is particular to Christianity. Other religions don't have it. He says Islam is all submission, basically, because it's, it's, it's entirely or predominantly uh, a religion of submitting to the law. He says something similar about Judaism. So it's really mm. uh, Christianity provides this dynamic structure by which a group um, begins to understand itself through an external mediator. And uh, so that to me is like the kind of anthropological foundation of his entire mm. politi- political outlook. And from there, he builds this into a theory of not just the state, um, but theory of the republic, theory of um, secularization, what happens when the world is disenchanted. That's his most famous book uh, taken from Max Weber. Mm. What happens when the world is disenchanted and what happens when religion loses its purchase is that you have what he says is the loss of common purpose. You no longer have a means to understand yourself as a society once that like mediating figure uh, disappears. So you have to, the, the task of politics is to reinvent that sacred thing that has disappeared. Um, and for Gaucher, this is a fairly standard Republican set of ideas that fills the void. What is it? The school, the school is supposed to educate us in a way that will make us understand ourselves and make us understand ourselves as a society um, transparently. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, 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 and so on down the line, um, just institutional analyses along the lines of Foucault for the asylum, for the school, as I said. Um, and so what you get is a politics built out of this kind of interesting anthropological, religious focus on deep history or, or you know, pretty early history. How much should we understand these thinkers, some or all of them, Jake, uh, in, in terms of a response to issues of immigration, race. I mean, you mentioned it when we were talking about, when you were talking about de Benoit. And then also, I mean, I know Gaucher is somebody who's sort of radicalized during the Algerian war. Like how, how much should we understand, even though the book isn't focused on this per se, but that, that these thinkers and these ideas are in some kind of response to the Algerian war, to the legacies of colonialism, uh, not just in Algeria, but elsewhere. To, to, is, that how, is that a way that you think about, about this work? Absolutely, yeah. I, I do think that there's a, yeah, a, a line that runs through the Algerian war, through 68, 
through the attempt to rethink politics in the 1970s and that mm -hmm. immigration uh, and the increasing visibility of, of uh, immigrants and also other political groups. Um, Foucault helped with some of these like prisoners. Sure. Um, that did change. Uh, it was partially responsible for the attempt to reframe, to reinvent categories of politics that could contend with these things. And I do think it was often in reaction to a perceived threat, mm. um, an anthropological threat, I think, as Pestoriadis said in one of his 70s essays, mm. that uh, was being presented to Europe. And I, I do think that the anthropological turn has a, a, a reactionary tendency in this respect, across the spectrum, as well, we don't we don't recognize our society as we once did. Something's different about it. Something's changed. Economically, it's different. Socially, it's different. And and you know, how do we how do we refuel the Republican uh, arsenal of ideas? It's a mixed metaphor. Sorry. How do you know? No, how no, do we rebuild? Okay. How do we rebuild the foundations of? Um, of republicanism to to account for this. Mm -hmm. That third chapter, Jake, is focused on Emmanuel Todd, who is you you point out he's the he's the only he is the only Jewish uh, thinker in the mix, right? Um, yes. In the in in the group, and I, I guess I'm curious, you know, for you to say more about how you think that's significant in terms of um, his ideas, and that's a chapter in which you really focus on those themes of the family and, you know, identity. Um, so can you tell us a little bit more about him? Yeah, Todd comes from a really well-established intellectual family. Uh, he's the grandson of Paul Nitzan, uh, the friend of Sartre, uh, wrote the incredible Chien de Garde, one of the great works on uh, the history of intellectuals, uh, and died uh, fighting the fascists in 1940. And Todd's father was the uh, Nouvelle Obs journalist and, and uh, biographer Olivier Todd. Uh, I guess it is. I don't think Olivier Todd's dead. Um, mm. And he, so he had a very uh, intellectual upbringing surrounded by uh, books. He remember he, he recalls being handed his first work of history by Emmanuel Loire Nadouri. Uh, and <laughs> no big deal. <laughs> no big deal. Yeah. So, you know, it came fairly naturally to the world of ideas and to the social sciences. I mean, when, yeah, your, your, your dinner guests are the Annal school or whatever, <laughs> it makes it a little bit easier for you. Um, his, so not first gen then. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> okay. uh, the family had ties to, England, and he did his schooling, his his uh, university schooling in in England, and learned a lot from English social history, work of Peter Laslett and Alan McFarlane. This is the early seventies, and decided to you know, kind of in line with their work, think more um, seriously about family structures and the way that family has influenced. Uh, political ideology, social social patterns. And so he ends up putting together in the early 80s, building on a, a dissertation that did something similar, uh, this kind of telescopic grid of, of family types 
and taking each of these types and then using them to explain how different societies, why different societies had the particular ideological configurations that they did. Mm. Um, Along the way, he... Uh, he predicted the fall of the Soviet Union. This is a book that get, that got him a lot of press. He wrote hmm. it when he was 20, 25, 20, 26. <laughs> okay. I know. Yeah. Um, whatever. Uh, <laughs> La chute finale. Uh, so he got, uh, that really elevated his, his name. Uh, got the, the book got a lot of press. Um, he got a column in Le Monde for a while. Uh, and then I think he moved to Ined, the demography, the National Demography Institute, some point in the early 80s, mid 80s. And that gave him, that's like his principal uh, professional affiliation ever since. And this is where he's produced his kind of laboratory of of family types. And last but not least, Debray, he's the focus of that fourth chapter. Uh, Yeah, he's been all over the place politically. He started off as a communist in the Communist Party. I should say, Todd, before he became a liberal in the 70s, uh, also spent a brief period in the Communist Party, then oh, traveled right. to East, yeah, Eastern right. Europe. And it's was, hard to kind of like, keep track yeah, of, Todd. <laughs> exactly. They were, I mean, yeah, all of them, except for uh, Du Benoit, were really politically all over the place. Mm-hmm. Gaucher became a much more, I didn't say this, but he became a much more centrist figure in the 80s. Um, and if you, you know, believe there's something like French liberalism, Gaucher is probably a part of that. But anyway, mm-hmm. yeah, Debray started off as a communist. He went to uh, Latin America. He was summoned to Latin America by Fidel Castro in 66. He then just uh, stopped his studies. He was at the UNS running a dissertation on Diderot, and he became a professional revolutionary at that point, as one does. Um, and he was asked to write this, like, pamphlet about uh, revolutionary guerrilla warfare, which he did. It's called The Revolution and the Revolution. Mm. And that became an international sensation used by militant political groups all over the world. It's the only Debray I, I have. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I feel bad because like, I think that's the only work of all of these thinkers that I actually have is that, that one. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it, it really it, it captured a moment. If I talk to if I talk to boomers about Debray, they'll know him based on this book. <laughs> yeah. If you if you watch some Godard from the from the mid sixties, there'll be you know, often a reference to to Debray as this symbol of uh, privileged uh, you, you know European philosopher being involved in uh, revolutionary struggle struggle in the third world. He fought with Che Guevara uh, in Bolivia, was captured with Che right before Che, and um, was imprisoned and then released after a big international campaign. He came back to France, um, immediately hitched himself to Mitterrand and, and traveled the country with him and became close uh, to him and, and, and campaigned really hard for the Union of the Left and uh, for Mitterrand's election in 81 and, and ultimately became a low-level cabinet, uh, low, not a cabinet advisor, uh, a low-level advisor to, to Mitterrand, mm. and then resigned in frustration after the first term in 88. But he came, when he came back to France, he, he started writing political theory that had obviously been influenced by his time in Latin America, and which tried to revive republicanism from a socialist perspective. And the book he wrote, the one I focus most on, 
in that chapter is called the critique of political reason. And that's built on, in, in terms that are very similar to Gaucher's argument in The Disenchantment of the World, an idea that politics requires religion, that all politics are, all politics is the sacred, uh, that you can't have politi- politics without it. And any politics that ignores that is going to fail uh, or degenerate into totalitarianism or something like that. So mm-hmm. it ends up being a case for for building uh, political movements on uh, not so much the principles of Marxism-Leninism, but rather on the principles of collective effervescence, of collective sensibility, uh, of re-socializing an atomized republic um, and organizing around symbols. Uh, So this is interesting because most socialists back away from uh, the idea that socialism is religion, but Debray fully embraced it. He said, this is actually the strongest thing about socialism is it's it's kind of quasi-religious aspect. So it, it was really controversial for, mm. yeah, so it was embraced, embraced by very few Marxists, but a, a lot of them were turned off by it. And then going forward, uh, Debray becomes more and more what we would think of as a, as a fairly standard, though left-wing uh, Republican, pushing for laicite, the Republican school. The one place where Debray was always, always controversial was on questions of uh, international relations and foreign politics. Very, very, uh, very, very anti-imperial, anti-war, um, opposed the NATO wars in the Balkans in the 1990s. And that really led to a big backlash against him. Mm. So to, the, to this day, he still feels, I think, wounded by the treatment he got by the French press for opposing mm-hmm. that NATO war. You, you know, throughout the book, well, you set it up this way, Jake, and then throughout the book, it's clear that these thinkers have, you know, had a significant impact in different ways in France. I'm wondering, I mean, and this is maybe a little bit selfish, just because of what I work on. But I'm wondering how you would want us to see this work of political anthropology in relationship to, I'm kind of hesitant to use the term grassroots, but whatever, I'll just use it. Um, Like the political activity of, you know, groups. And I'm thinking, because I work on nuclear stuff, I'm thinking of like, you know, environmental groups, like feminist groups, like just the kind of how you would want us to understand the thought of these figures in relationship to the movements of the 1970s. And, you know, not at the other extreme, but in another way, in terms of everyday politics, like the work of political parties and their evolution and proliferation in this period, like, for people who don't know anything about either the 70s or about this kind of relationship between political thought and more everyday politics, how would you want us to, to make those connections? Yeah, this is really interesting. I I would say that the anthropological turn, in my view, has been an obstacle to the development of really serious anti-systemic political movements. And I would mm-hmm. hope that that political movements would completely ignore the, anthrop- the thinkers of the anthropological <laughs> turn and de- develop their own develop their own intellectual resources and their own their own language of politics and resistance and and find the, their own terms on which to to express solidarity and, and unite against whatever it is yeah. that they're fighting against. There's a defensive quality to the anthropological terms, anthrop- anthropological thinking that developed out of the '70s. 
and it's not fed into, I think, any serious oppositional political movement. I think those are coming from places that people don't entirely understand yet. Mm. And I hope, you know, I really hope that continues. Yeah. And um, yeah, and that, that the anthropological turn is, is a paradigm that's overthrown. Uh, so you could have yeah. Different, yeah, different kinds of resistance. It sounds though like we need to understand these thinkers in order to understand, like you say, why certain things haven't happened or why certain things haven't taken hold or had more success. Is that, am I getting that right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I do think I think I do think understanding him is really important to understanding where France is. Yeah, and understanding why uh, certain voices have not, or certain voices have been suppressed, or logics logics of, of struggle have been have been muted. And uh, you know, I think that uh, a really significant green movement could break out. There, these thinkers have not that much to say about. Uh, green politics, not that much to say about populism. Uh, so there, there's a world in the making that that's been happening for the last 15 mm-hmm. years. I think that is beginning to escape the the paradigm, the perspectives offered by mm-hmm. these thinkers. And of course, that that's scary and, and potentially could go in, could go in any direction. But it's also potentially exciting right. and new. Along the way, in our conversation and in the book, you know these important political leaders come up. And so I'm just wondering, like, how much should we attribute the thinking of figures like, well, Giscard, but then Mitterrand, like these other, these like, political actors that, you know, we know because they were presidents <laughs> and, and <laughs> prime ministers. Like, how should we, you know, I don't really want to know what was in Chirac's library that much, but I, but you know, that, how should we understand the, the, the relationship between these thinkers and those more obvious political leaders, movers, shakers, Le Pen, like, you know, what, how, how do we make that connection? Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a great question. I don't know about Giscard, but I, there's always been a question about the proximity of the Nouvelle Droite to the Front National. Uh, officially, Du Benoit thinks that they're low class and anti-intellectual <laughs> and, w- and will have nothing to do with it beneath right. his dignity, essentially. But there's always been the idea that the new the new right is recruiting, basically, for the Front National, or is like an independent, independently constituted think tank for huh. the FN or the RN, I guess. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm so, still not used to doing that. <laughs> I know, yeah. Chirac and Debray were very close, mm. uh, weirdly. And Debray, you know, one one of his weaknesses, you could say, is that he enjoys relationships with people in power. Mm. Uh, that's a continuity in his career from from Castro to, to sure, Che, yeah. to Mitterrand, to, to Chirac, who I, I think sponsored one of, one of his books, his research in the Middle East, uh, written written at the behest of Chirac. And then Chirac's 1995 campaign slogan was taken from one of Gaucher's papers. Oh, the idea of, yeah. of la facture sociale is uh, is a Gauchean idea. Um, right. but characteristically, it's not really using the language of class or class struggle. It's it's a it's a vague idea of a breakdown of the social or you know some malaise with the social that that mm. Chirac was there to to resurrect for us. Mm-hmm. Thank God. Um, <laughs> yeah. So so I you know the 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 linkages between thinkers and uh, uh, and Politicians goes both ways, for right. sure. So in the conclusion to the book, Jake, you bring us, you know, to the to the 21st century, which is there in various ways. And of course, now that you've shared, you know, how you've 
forge this project, it's it's more apparent to me some of the things that I read, like thinking about making connections between the 1970s and the, you know, that period of 2008 um, and that crisis. But here we are in 2022. And so I guess I, yeah, I guess I want to ask a broad question about those legacies into the 21st century and up to the present and what you would want readers who for various reasons approach the book, but maybe including trying to understand where French politics and thinking is at. And I know you think about these things and I know that the points of focus in the book are for you in relationship to contemporary political happenings. So yeah, how do you make the connection for yourself and how would you want readers to to link up the political spectrum landscape of contemporary France that is right now um, with this spectrum of political ideas and in particular with this this political anthropology of the 1970s? Yeah, thank you. I, I think if you read the book and you pay attention to what's happening in France, you'll see a lot of these ideas bouncing around uh, in the political discourse. You'll see Du Benoit's ideas in Zemmour. Yeah. You'll see some of De Bray's ideas in Mélenchon. Uh, and I, th- I think it, it will give you a, a, a better handle on the convulsions and shape of pl- political discourse in France um, since the 70s. But also, as, as I said earlier, I, th- I think it's still... Uh, it's still relevant to how politicians and people, French people, understand what's happening in France, the, the basic political problems and questions and, and threats, too. And um, those are, I think, pretty continuous since the 1970s. So I didn't know when to ask you about this, Jake, but before we we leave the book and I ask you about, you know, whatever's been preoccupying you uh, in terms of your scholarship, research, writing, teaching, whatever, um, since since it came out, I got to ask you about this cover, which I love, um, this image on the cover. Can you tell us a little bit? about? I mean, it's a podcast, yeah. so nobody's looking at it unless you're online. <laughs> but when you see the book, you'll know what I mean. This beautiful. Yeah, you have to you have to buy the book now. Yes, exactly. This is an original. This is an original piece of art. I'm very proud of acquiring this. It's from my neighbor, a brilliant artist named Aaron Gemmel. I love that. And he did a series of these prints, and um, all of them are beautiful. I invite you to to look at his website. Mm, Aaron, okay, Aaron I can link to it in the in the blog post for the. Excellent. Yeah, that would be great. And I narrowed it down to a few that I really loved. This one had a French title, which comes from the Lacanian joke, uh, "Les noms du père," not spelled that way. You know. Oh. Oh, that's awesome. Okay. So I thought, yeah, I thought that was perfect. Um, you know, wh- why would you? Why would you have a cover when you can have a Lacanian pun <laughs> on your cover? That's great. And the other thing is that to me, it it looked like, and a lot of them looked like the situationist, yeah, uh, psychogeographical maps, which were theorized in really interesting ways by the, the situationists. And I thought that it had a parallel in the time period. It suggested a kind of confusion, but also a, a map yeah. that you could somehow maybe put together or some, something like that. But Yeah. No, I love it because it's not obvious and because I really did. I wanted to ask you, like, you, you you got to be involved in this in a way that, you know, some authors are, some authors aren't. Um, we, we have more or less input on these things. And because this represents such a deliberate choice, I was really curious to know, you know, what it evokes for you. Uh what about since the book came out? I know 
you've been doing a lot of things on different fronts since the book came out, but are you thinking of next projects? Yeah, I, I actually have, I have, I have been working on a new project, which I'm really excited about. It's um, a history of the genre of autobiography. Autobiography is seen as a way of doing political theory. So it's a focus on, wow. yeah, like really kind of theoretical or really well known. Who can I ask a sneak peek at who, who are the types of figures who you might be looking at in that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm working on, for French readers, uh, Simone de Beauvoir. Nice. Kind of obviously. And and Rousseau, of course. Also, uh, C.L.R. James, Malcolm X. Oh, wow. So this is like beyond France and be, like across yeah. time. That's amazing. Yeah, W.B. Du Bois, uh, who wrote three autobiographies. So it's really, it's a way of reading autobiography side by side with political theory and, and seeing the self as an aspect of uh, of a thinker's kind of more traditional way of thinking about politics and political theory. Well, that sounds fantastic. I, I don't know that you'll come in, back and talk to me about it because it's not necessarily like you, you might want to talk to the whole world about it instead of just <laughs> some French studies punk. But um, <laughs> if you'll have me back, I would love to come back. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I wish you great luck with it. And Jake, I just want to thank you so much for for writing this fascinating book and, and for talking to me about it. Thank you for having me on the show. It's been a great pleasure talking to you.